Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Journey Jazz Cat, composer and multi-instrumentalist Vinnie Golia. Over the course of our conversation, he discussed his life as a visual artist in New York City, how he got into music almost by accident, his gigs all over the world, a celebrated recording career, and his current teaching post at CalArts. He also talked about the history of his 50-piece large ensemble and how he has contributed original compositions and scores to ballet and modern dance works, along with videos, theatrical productions, and film. Vinny is a creative force, to put it mildly, and he has a brilliantly woven tale of creativity, story, and jazz. Please dig this interview, my friends. What's happening? Oh, not too much, man. Hey, thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Not a problem. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in here, and I'm going to ask you, first of all, what has been going on with you lately? Ha! What do you mean? (laughs) 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 I'm actually uh, getting ready to go play with the Rovet Saxophone Quartet in New York. They have a residency at Stone. We're doing a special project with uh, saxophones. We're reprising something we did I guess in the 90s, a group called Figure Eight with a double saxophone quartet. I'm uh, writing a sweeter music for, uh, I'll actually finish writing a sweeter music for a new group that I started. Let's see. And I have a touring schedule coming up. I'm playing some concerts with um, a guitar player from uh, from Sacramento, Ross Hammond, and uh, also um going to Italy to um, uh, teach a workshop and also play um, with uh, Gianni Mimo, who's a soprano saxophonist of study with Steve Lacey, a very fine saxophone player. I uh, do some things at one of the universities there, so I'm playing there. And then I'm uh, in Portland for the, um, well, before that I played the Penafin Festival, which is uh, just outside of San Francisco. And from there, I go to Portland to play um, the 25-year celebration of that jazz. It's called the Creative Music Guild. It was started by Rob Blakesley, a trumpet player from, from that area, and Rich Holly. And uh, I have some other things in Europe towards the end of the summer, and uh, also the Vancouver um, the Jazz Festival in Vancouver. So that on top of that, I teach at CalArts, so I have a pretty full schedule for that. I have three ensembles that are doing concerts, and I guess in the end of the summer, I play the Angel City Festival here, and a few other things like that, so I'm I'm keeping busy. Absolutely, sounds like it. Let me go back to the beginning of your life. Where were you born and raised? I was, I'm from the Bronx, uh, in New York. Wonderful. So, what was it about your childhood that gave you this love that you have of jazz? My dad was a really loved swing music and played it around the house on recordings and also um my mom actually um used to you know she was like one of these manic Italian women where you clean the house get up at five o'clock and clean the house and go to work and then come home cook dinner and do stuff like that and you know I mean really <laughs> really intense she used to sing while she was cleaning so I heard all these like really popular songs from when I was a child. So uh, even to even to now, I can kind of play a tune I've never heard before because my mother probably sang it, and I, it's in my head. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can kind of hear the you know you can kind of hear the progression of it because you know the melody and you can just kind of jump on it. You know, 
So, yeah. um, I mean, I think those two things started it, but the real um, love for sound in itself came from uh, my dad worked at the Bronx Zoo. And I was there from a really early age with my dad, going to work with my dad and stuff, because both of my parents worked. And I was exposed to sounds of animals and nature like from when I was a little child. And also I heard music from other cultures uh, when I was very young because of the um, influence of the, uh, of the people and ambassadors coming to the zoo to give gifts and stuff they would bring. It would be like it would be a real celebration, you know. Like if somebody from Africa came, there'd be African drumming and all kinds of stuff like that. So I heard a lot of this stuff from when I was a a child, but I didn't play until I was 25. Interesting. What did you start out on? Well, I was a painter, and I used to put records on and paint along with records and stuff like that. I was working on my stuff, you know. um, uh, But uh, I heard. Coltrane playing soprano saxophone, and that's the that's the first instrument I I, I started with. I didn't know it was you know that's where to start. I had no no clue no clue whatsoever. <laughs> I did a, actually did an album cover for Chikori, uh, the song of singing, and I made some money, and uh, with the money I bought my first saxophone. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's a very strange little story, but it's true. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, since it took you so long to play an instrument, what did you dream about being when you were a kid? Was it always the arts or was it something else? I mean, when I was there, that's, you know, um, I grew up in the late 50s into the 60s. So I was there all the way into the early 70s, about 71 or or so I left. Um, It was an amazing time for the arts and music in New York. I mean, uh, I, my day job was like working at the Museum of Modern Art. So I got to see all the great pieces. I was working on my own stuff so I could, I had access to books for study. It was really fantastic. And then also, um, the, the, um, just the, um, just the, uh, basic volume of, of creativity there was just astounding. I mean, the musicians were, all, but most of the people I know were at that time were just coming up and becoming famous. So uh, it was a very striking time to even think about starting to do anything because all these people were on that kind of the edge, you know, all these people like, uh, you know, Chick Corea, Dave Holland, Anthony Braxton, Dave Liebman, Stevie Grossman, Brecker Brothers. You know, uh, McLaughlin was around there. I mean, all these guys were just starting to come into their own and and really changing this, changing the face of music in a certain way. And then we're also uh, a gigantic, um, a gigantic, uh, um, uh, what would you call it? Uh, a, a reverence for tradition with a lot of the black musicians uh, uh, um, uh, starting their own uh, places to play, you know, and, and starting their own, uh, establishing their own selves as, uh, as like, uh, we, you know, we want to be independent from this. We want to do our own thing. You know, that kind of thing was happening also. So it was an amazingly fertile time in, in New York City during that. You still playing the horn at 25. Talk to me about mm. how your career in jazz began and what it was like to get on stage and performing your first professional gig? 
<laughs> well, yeah. that's a strange story also. Um, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, wind up uh, as a substitute teacher on an Indian reservation. It just gets it gets very unusual. Um, uh, um, and the lawyer for the Indians was a fantastic bassist named Reed Wasson, who had played with uh, Rowan Kirk and Nina Simone, and um, well, that's pretty much enough. But also Lee Men and a few of these other guys. But uh, his he was a his dad ran a legal firm, and uh, in order to um, do some of the things that he wanted to do, he he was working, uh, how can I say, you know, it's the 60s. Everybody was a bit more idealistic. He was working for the Indians as their legal representative. And so on the Zuni reservation, uh, I was looking for work, and I called him. You know, I called all the people I knew looking for work at the, at that time. Uh, he um, said there was a substitute teaching job, and so I went to New Mexico to check it out I'm, and um, I'm, as you can see I was rather a free spirit so I, I got in the car and drove down here and went there and we hung out I stayed at his place for a while he saw I had a saxophone he said let's play I said no 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 I said I'm not in your league he said well, you just start out he said I'll, I'll give you some exercises and we can play after that so he was very very helpful in that way and his band came to the reservation uh, I was there we all played together, and uh, within a year of having the horn, I was playing in Charlottesville, Virginia, at a at a jazz folk club, and uh, I did my first gig on soprano. Wow! And then uh, we went to uh, New York. Um, a band broke up, and then I traveled around and kind of just picked up stuff and studied my ass off and took up day jobs and. It would work construction every once in a while or house painting and stuff. Get enough money so I could, you know, not work for a couple of months, practice, and then do that kind of thing. Right on. It seems it seems easier now that I'm looking back on it than it was at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and during that time, I started picking up other instruments because, you know, bands would say, like, well, that's great, but you only play soprano. We'd like to have tenor or... Or, hey, can you play clarinet or do you play flute? You know, that kind of stuff. So I had no real fear about these things uh, and and actually was very naive about some things. So I would get a book, like, you know, I remember, like, for the flute, there was a book called uh, How to Play the Flute by Sheridan Stokes. He's a famous studio musician out here. I don't know if he's still alive, but, but his book was really helpful. I got this book, and then I got other books and just read and, listen to people, you know, and since I had been in New York, I kind of knew what everything was supposed to sound like. So it was a matter of, like, connect, connecting the, the dots. But I don't want it to make it seem like, you know, oh, it's nothing. But, but it, you know, it was a fair amount of work, but was also um, was also I kind of knew what I wanted to do, which made it a lot easier. Absolutely. Well, and as time has gone on, you've fused together your own sound of, you know, kind of the roots of jazz, contemporary classical, world music. How did this sound that you have evolved? How did you get to this point where you're at today? Mm, uh, well, you know, it, it's constantly changing. I had a lot of uh, influence when I was a kid, as I just said, you know. And also, um, I, uh, the people that you play with influence you the most. So, you know, the more you hear about 
other musicians if you're really um if you're really working on on what it is that you want to do then you kind of do the research and go back in time and see like like for example like um I wanted to play uh, a specific a bass clarinet for example you know you go back into the history of it I mean it doesn't just start with like people like like Eric Dolphy but there are people who played it before him there are people who certainly who played it a lot after him too so you have to be kind of aware of who's been playing, what they do with it, you know, I still look at as much and listen to as much stuff as possible. Not not everything, of course, but as much as I can get my hands on. And I'm also at a a university where, where there are a lot of up and coming uh, students who might say like, Oh, have you heard this group? You know, have a, have you heard Miss Urban? Well, let me check it out. You know, Oh, they do this. Oh, Okay. Well, I see this. That ties to this. This goes to this. Oh, okay. You know, you make these kind of connections, and then without realizing it, sometimes things show up in your music. You know, it's kind of how the music, how I was taught, like how it grows. You know, I mean, when I came to California, I was very, very fortunate in um, hooking up with John Carter and uh, Bobby Bradford and uh, Horace Tapscott, and they were were. Uh, they were, you know, like really great, um, really great examples of the music. But at the same time, I was playing a lot with Nels Klein and Alex Klein and a few others. And their uh, um, their uh, record collections were encyclopedic, you know. So there was a lot of listening. Like we'd play all day and sometimes listen uh, for a long time and, you know, talk about different kinds of things and, uh, uh, Alex and, and I both had an interest in uh, Messiaen and Tibetan music, and Nels had an interest in a lot of the folk people that I enjoyed, you know, like, uh, you know, not only Joni Mitchell, but also, like, you know, Dave Van Ronk and all these old blues guys and stuff. So we, our, our listening sessions were pretty intense, and I think that, again, that all crops up in your own sound because you utilize everything that you have, you know. I mean, otherwise, it... it it's going to get boring real fast to become a stylist of your own uh, limited abilities, you know? Absolutely. Well, yeah. let's talk a little bit about geography, which has been a big deal. We talked at the top of the hour. You're going to go to Italy and Europe. You've been to New Zealand, Australia, Japan. You've been all over the place. What is it like to go into other cultures and other regions of the world and deliver your music to people? Mm, that's a great question. The one that comes to mind the most, was a few years ago, right after the war in Bosnia and, and such, I um, I was scheduled to play a festival, and a lot of the players canceled on the festival because they were afraid of the war. Yeah, and I had friends living there, so they were keeping me pretty informed about what was happening and stuff. And I said, like, you know, we were supposed to play in Skopje, Macedonia, and. Uh, and I said, well, uh, listen, I don't want to get my butt blown off. Is it safe? Or what? And they said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's fine. They said, the stuff on the news is like, that's mostly happening in this area. We're up here. Everything is cool. If you come, everything will be great. You know? So I played that festival, and people were so appreciative of the fact that a person from another culture would come and dis- and not really pay attention to the political things that were going on around them and just want to create music for them they were so appreciative it was just fantastic i mean it was just it's it's a very blessed thing to be able to to do to express yourself and have people respond to it so positively you know 
Um, and then there are other things too. It's like, you know, I was playing in a club and I, I had with me my contrabass flute because I had to play, um, with the, um, with the, I was playing with the, uh, symphony in Romania, a piece by, um, a spectral composer. And, um, and the beginning of it had this contrabass flute solo piece, the section through it. So I'm playing that and then we played in clubs. So I had the instrument set up and people were, were very curious about it, but they were also incredibly uh, interested in how much these things cost because, you know, like uh, um, uh, the flute costs more than what a person would make in a year. It just makes you feel very humbled when you go someplace and you realize that, that you're an ambassador, you know, in a certain way. I mean, Ellington and, and, uh, and Louis Armstrong and, and many others who have, who have been ambassadors always talk about this, you know, how, how you're bringing an example of like, you know, American culture to another place and stuff without being, uh, without being, really without being obnoxious about it. But you're, you're an example of your, of your country when you go to these places and, and, and that culture. And it, and it, it's a very humbling experience. I mean, Japan was like that. Uh, uh, Australia and, and New Zealand were fantastic like that also, you know, um, uh, every place you go, people are appreciative of, of the fact that you do what it is that you do, and and, uh, and that you remain true to yourself. So it's a very humbling experience. You know, one of the most interesting things out of your bio that just stops me every time I look at it is your 50-piece ensemble, and it began <laughs> started in '82. It's ongoing. That talk to me a little bit about how that began and how it's gone through its evolution throughout the years. Okay, so large ensemble was um, basically an attempt to try and get. Uh, yeah, Los Angeles is a giant a geographical. Uh, it's just an expanse, and yeah. there are all these pockets of really great um, music in different geological areas. So it might be like at that time there were uh, there was a group in Pasadena called the Free Music Society. There were a bunch of classical musicians in South Pasadena uh, with David Ocker and Anne LaBerge. There was uh, uh, a, um, uh, a cadre of players uh, from the black community in Watts area. There was uh, another uh, another another uh, valley contingent of players and stuff. So I thought like maybe I could put together a, a larger version of what I do with a with a group of people who came from all these different places, you know. And uh, the first concert was 82. It went pretty well. And then I didn't have a lot of money, so I scaled it down in 83 for like an octet. And then in 84, um, somebody said like, well, you know, we're having this festival. We really would like you to do your large ensemble. And I said, oh, man. So let's try it. You know, I said, okay. So I tried it again, and and, uh, everybody was really into doing it. And it's been together ever since. Um, uh, originally it was 14 pieces and then the first things I did was to expand the brass section a bit and add a tuba and then I started with strings and stuff and now we have uh, it now it's called the Vinicolia New Music Orchestra it's uh, we actually um, we actually just did a we did a concert last year and um, uh, that's we call it that because now it's uh, it's a basically a, a chamber orchestra Right on. It, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, and the school, 
working at the school has given me access to all these um, new musicians that are really anxious to, you know, play their music and play this music. And and also at the school, I have a large ensemble at school, so it's almost like a training ground, and I can try out my stuff ahead of time, which makes it even better. It's like a workshop, you know. Yeah. It's like that thing that Mingus, like the kind of thing that Mingus always wanted, and the thing that Ellington had, you know, like his his own band. We meet every Monday. We play. You know, I bring in new pieces. We try them out. The pieces change. One year we had two tubas and two guitars as the uh, and two basses as the, uh, with two drummers as the rhythm section. The next year it was like a, you know, harp, four vocalists and, uh, uh, strings. So, you're, so every year, every semester the book is different. I write it, I find out who's in it. I, that's what I was doing before you called. And, uh, I have a lot of, um, uh, more, uh, percussion this year. So I'm gearing it more towards like a, almost like an Afro beat thing. So we're, we're going off towards that thing where the, where the uh, music is a little bit more rhythmic in this particular thing. In previous times, we had a lot of classical players, so the music was a bit more a bit more um, strided towards creating this kind of um, more uh, 21st century type sound. So yeah. it's really fantastic, and, and every time the personnel changes, the music changes, and it's really fan- It's great for me. Really great. Yeah. 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 Let me let me piggyback a little bit off Cal Arts. I've talked to a lot of young musicians that have come out of there, like recently Ocean Jewel, and they glowed and went on mm-hmm. about the the incubated community of pure art that goes on there. Talk to me a little bit about teaching for Cal Arts and what you your philosophy is on with on your with your students. Well, basically, I want to see what they're doing and find a quicker way for them to do it more efficiently. I mean, it's, um, if I go in with a set, uh, set of things that I want to do, then it becomes too cookie cutter for me. You know, um, I need to have, I need to know what the students want to do so that they can actually do it. Then I have, I should have enough, um, um, uh, life experience, uh, knowledge, book knowledge, et cetera, academic knowledge to to further them in, in what it is that they're searching for. Ocean's an interesting cat, you know, like a um he's um he was a uh, he's a uh he's blessed with a really beautiful tone on the instrument and he's a great improviser. He came to Cal Arts and um he wanted to open up a little bit more and he started, you know, playing with people like me. Leo Smith was there at the time, things like that. And and he really started to like, um, you know, like expand on expand on his um, expand on on, on uh, what it is that he was doing. Plus, he started playing, um, getting into you know instruments from other cultures like the like Balkan, the Balkan instruments and stuff like that, and playing with Miroslav uh, uh, Tadic. Uh, who's you know from that area? So that's a way to expand a person and get get them more into into um, their own thing rather than enforcing a set of rules on top of them. And I think that's a much more um, uh, yeah, I think it's a much easier way to work and and uh, much more rewarding for teachers and students. Absolutely. So you've, you've, you've gotten rewards over the years from the National Endowment of the Arts, California Arts Council. The list goes on. Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let me ask you this. This is the thing that I'm always very interested in. 
I'm not interested in what your favorite award or what the top one is, but I want to know, is there an award that you got that just kind of threw you for a curve, just knocked you down, you're like, wow, that was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> one year I won, um, Jazz Times said that um, I was one of the 100 people who influenced jazz in, in, in that particular time period. And uh, I thought that was... Um, with the list of people that, that they also um, mentioned, I thought that was really uh, quite amazing. Uh, another time, uh, the LA Weekly gave me, um, an, uh, well, actually, the jazz writers from LA gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award, which I thought was pretty nice. I mean, anytime I get an award, I think it's really fantastic, yeah. especially since, uh, compared to some, I haven't been playing, you know, all that all that long even though it's still like about 40 years or so i i can't exp- express it but you know you get these things and it's like wow that's nice that somebody's thinking of you and and and, and such it's just um it's it's just very um uh, uh again i hate to overuse the word but it, it it is a very humbling experience to be grouped in with other people that that you admired like when you were coming up and and uh and uh, um, uh, it makes you part of that community. It's it's just very nice. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. If you could go back in time, get to a time machine and see a show and the history of music, where would you go and who would you want to see? Uh, I never saw Coltrane. I'd love to see Coltrane live. Yeah. I, that's that's just like that. And I would have liked to see Eric Dolphy also. Um, Bobby Bradford has stories about both and has played with both and um uh and just his stories and and his um just the way he looks when he talks about it is, is just so exciting I, I those are two players that I gravitate towards and I would really like to um, or would have I would have liked to have, have seen at one point if my awareness was a little larger than it was at the at the time <laughs> right on <laughs> Yeah. So this is going to kind of piggyback off the awards question, but I want to ask you this. When the world opens up that big grand book of jazz history and they come across your name, how do you want the world to remember your contribution to the, the world of jazz, not only as a player and a recording artist, but as a teacher? Everyone will have their own opinion. I I, I would like to be remembered like, like my dad, my father, um, I never met anyone who who never said who ever said a bad thing about my father. Um, I'm sure I can't live up to that <laughs> from, from certain things that have happened in my life, but but I would like to remember that as a, you know a, a, a nice, helpful person who had a sense of uh, of spirit and um, uh, you know and such you know. Uh, and I don't ask for uh, too much, but you know. Uh, the fact that I'd be remembered at all would be <laughs> lovely. I would like that. You know, that would mean that things would, would go go forward. Yeah. I, I think that's the perfect way to end. Thank you for your time, man. This was great. I appreciate you opening up and giving me a part of your uh your jazz world. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in California, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Vinny for his music, his education, his cool, and being a pure force of creativity in the world. 
If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.